Chris, I'm so thankful for your leadership, my friend. Thank you so much for leading us this morning. And uh, when I say I'm so glad to be here with my, my church family, I, I really am. I got my family back, which I'm excited about. And uh, yeah, I'm not going to judge your lukewarm applause there. Um, <laughs> As in any, any indication of how excited you are that my family's here. But I do want to say, can I say to my son and daughter what I said to these folks? I love you and I miss you terribly. I'm so glad you're here. So I'm glad that you are reunited. Yes. Um, you know, I've been part of several churches over the years, either studying in various places. And I have to tell you, I've never seen a VBS set this beautiful, this ornate, this complicated. Uh, so it's really uh, amazing the, the work that went in. But of course, the goal is not to win an award for the best set. The goal is to create an environment that is well-suited for the proclamation of good news. And so we're going to be, we're going to be giving good news to a lot of kids over the next uh, few days. And again, I hope that you uh, have your son or daughter uh, signed up for that. And, um, and this morning, we're going to continue in a series that we started a couple weeks ago. Let's pray, and we will uh, get into the text. Uh, Father in heaven, we are grateful that we have an advocate that when we sin, which we do, when we fail, which we do and we will, we have an advocate in the person of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as First John tells us. Lord, thank you that though we have no right to approach you by our own goodness or our own worth, we can now come to you boldly, humbly, with great expectation because of the access that has been granted to us through the cross work of Jesus. Lord, thank you for that this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you have not left us alone, but you've given us your word, which is living and active and powerful. You've given us your Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one who convicts and builds up and tears down and does what is necessary in our hearts. And you've given us each other. And Lord, I pray that you would encourage us uh, in those relationships this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. And um, what we're going to be doing as a normal custom here is working our way through books of the Bible kind of one at a time. But I did want to kind of lay a foundation here. So this is the third week of a series that I've called First Things, in which we're looking at some of those foundational commitments that a faithful church holds on to. Uh, now, I'm calling them pillars or footers, and there are other things, of course, that we're not, we're not addressing, but uh, I wanted to cover a few things as we get started, uh, as I get started here in my tenure. In the first week, uh, we looked at Isaiah 43, and we looked at this concept of glory, and we said that we've been made, we've been created to glorify God. Been, we've been made for Him to display and extend His glory, and, and when we accentuate His beautiful characteristics, his perfections, his holiness, his mercy, his love, his kindness, his justice, we actually glorify him, which he delights in. Uh, this is why we exist as individuals and as, as a church to glorify God. Last week, we established what it means to be a gospel-centered church, namely that we believe the gospel, which is this, this announcement, this good news that God is making right the world through faith in Jesus Christ, uh, we believe the gospel is not just for unbelievers, it's also for believers. So it's not just the power by which the unbelieving are converted, though it is that. It's also the fuel by which believers are progressively sanctified. So we looked at what that 
meant last week as we looked at gospel. And the gospel not only unites us to God, but it also creates a community. And that community is what we're going to talk about this morning. So these are the pillars that make up the series that we're looking at. Glory, gospel, uh, community, worship, mission, and prayer. This morning we're looking at uh, community. So um, First Peter, we'll be in uh, First Peter chapter 4. Let me just set this up by telling you about uh, something I read recently. About 18 years ago, there's a, a Christian counselor by the name of Larry Crabb. And, I, and, and by the way, I, I try to read uh, broadly. I read people that I agree with and I read people that I disagree with. And, and there's much that Larry Crabb has written that's actually really good. And there's some other things that I don't agree with. But I, I'll never forget him telling what happened to him in his personal life when he reached the age of 50. He said that he encountered a midlife crisis. And when he went through this ordeal, it just really kind of spiraled uh, downward. He said that God taught him something that, that radically reoriented the rest of his life. And he said what he learned was that so much of what our culture calls psychological disorder is really just the soul crying out for authentic community. Now, I don't make no mistake, there are real psychological disorders. But he said what, a lot of what we call psychological disorder is really the soul crying out for real, honest, transparent relationships where we actually love each other and live with each other with our masks off. So we're able to, to let other people see our foibles and our sin tendencies and, and able to be honest with each other. In fact, Crabb even went on to say that the, the future of the church depends on whether or not it develops true community. He says this in his book, Connecting. He says, we can get by for a while on size, skilled communication, and programs to meet every need. But unless we sense that we belong to each other, with masks off, the vibrant church of today will become the powerless church of tomorrow. Stale, irrelevant, a place of pretense where sufferers suffer alone, where pressure generates conformity rather than the spirit creating life. That's where the church is headed unless it focuses on community. So the Bible talks a lot about community, and, and uh, we see that throughout the New Testament. We see it, it, it exemplified in the Old Testament. Um, we're actually desperate for relationship. We're, we're wired that way. We're created that way. And so we, in fact, you remember when, when Genesis 1, 2, and 3 talk about God creating the world and so on, and then God says, let us make man in our own image. Well, who else was there? Nobody else was there. This is God talking about his triune nature forever existing in perfect harmony as Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we then, as those who are created in the image of God, we are created to be relational people. And so the people that are the most miserable, the most unhappy, are the people who are the most alone. Well, we, we, the Bible talks a lot about community, and, and Peter addresses this as well. Let me read uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7-11, through 11, which is where we'll spend our time this morning. The text reads this way. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And before we go too far, just a little context. This letter uh, was penned by Peter, naturally, and it was written to a group of uh, Christians who were dispersed throughout an area known as Asia Minor, which is what we now know as, as Turkey. And by the middle of the first century, which is when this letter was written, probably around 64 AD, um, Christians were really suffering. In fact, you've probably heard the name Nero. Uh, Nero was a uh, diabolical madman who hated Christians. In fact, it was, it was uh, known that Nero would actually, uh, and I know this is kind of gory, but uh, Nero would, would put Christians' bodies on stakes, uh, these high poles in his garden, and he would light them on fire in order to illuminate uh, his surroundings. So here's a guy who hated Christians and persecuted Christians. Um, he was the one who uh, allegedly you know, would dip them in oil, do all kinds of, of horrible things to them. And so if you were a Christian at that time, um, you had to kind of go underground in order to worship as part of a community. And so Peter would address his recipients as exiles, um, sojourners, as those who had been, um, those who really had become instant nobodies. They had lost everything. They'd lost their connections. They'd lost their jobs. They'd lost some of their family members who had turned their backs on them. They had become instant nobodies. And so Peter writes to them um, as a way to encourage them in their identity in Jesus. Throughout this entire letter, he weaves in and out statements of significant, the significance of being in Christ. For example, he says this very early on in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I want you to notice, this is not something that these people were to aspire to. This is what they were. Peter doesn't say, if you do these things, you'll become God's people. He says, no, you are holy. You are a royal priesthood. You are a chosen people. You have been called out of darkness into light. This is what they, they already were. This is good news if you're beaten down, if you're just sort of hanging on by a spiritual thread, again, which was the case in the first century, and maybe it's the case for some of you today, you feel like I'm just barely hanging on here. It's good news to know who you are in Christ right now by faith, not what you will someday be if you do well enough, but what you are right now by faith. It's also encouraging to know that suffering will not last forever. In verse 7, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. In other words, everything that needs to be completed in redemptive history has been completed. We're living in the so-called last days. This uh, was a way for Peter to, to encourage his uh, readers who had been probably dissuaded by the scoffers of his day that, that Christ's return is at hand. It says, therefore, be sober-minded and be self-controlled. The word for self-controlled is an interesting Greek word. It comes from a Greek word, uh, sophroneo, which actually means sane. It says, you know, look, the end is at hand. Jesus is coming soon. Therefore, be sane. In other words, have a right view of reality. It means to be in touch with reality, to see things as they truly are. My wife, Janine, and I were getting ready for lunch, to have lunch a couple of years ago. 
And so uh, I said, hey, why don't you just pick me up at the office and I'll jump in the car and, and we'll go have lunch and you can drop me off afterward. So she picked me up at the church building and when I got in the vehicle, I noticed that uh, she had her sunglasses on, but she only had, but one of the lenses was out. So there's only one lens in the sunglasses. And so I, I, I kind of looked at her and I kind of chuckled and she said, what? I said, oh, you know, nothing. And so we just got all, we you know, drove off and, and then we, we saw somebody at lunch and she, she talked to this person. She engaged this person. She still had her sunglasses on with just the one lens. And so I'm thinking, all right, I mean, she's getting a lot of mileage out of this, but I'm not going to say anything. So we talked. So we sat there at lunch, and she kept her sunglasses on the whole time. We're enjoying lunch together, and so we had lunch. She dropped me off back at the church. I started studying it, and I got a phone call. And I answered the phone. She goes, I can't believe you. I said, what do you mean you can't believe me? Why didn't you tell me? Why didn't, you, why didn't I tell you what? Why didn't you tell me that I only had one lens in my sunglasses? I said, there's no way that you didn't know. There's, I mean, there's no way. I, I knew you were just messing. There's no, she was, I had no idea that I only had one lens in my sunglasses. Now, I, whenever I tell this story, and I don't tell it that often, but I, I have to include two things. First of all, I got permission from my wife to share that. Um, and secondly, my wife is extremely intelligent. She's a cardiovascular nurse. Um, she's very, she has way better focus than I do typically. I mean, she, she can zone into something and pay and, and I'm easily distracted. So I'm very envious of her ability to focus in on something and, and complete a task without being distracted. But for that moment, I mean, inexplicably, her vision of reality was distorted. She didn't recognize that she only had one lens in her sunglasses. She couldn't accurately see. It was so close to her that she, couldn't, she didn't realize what was going on. What Peter's saying is, despite what the scoffers are saying, despite the ridicule of the people around you, the return of Christ is so close that you should live in light of that. And one of the ways to live in light of that, he says, is above all, to love one another deeply. In fact, verse 8, above all, keep loving each other earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. See, love is where this whole thing starts, Peter says, this idea of living in community. Love is, is the bottom line, so to speak, in terms of our relationships with others. And this is why Peter says, above all. Above all. So he sets it apart from all the other instructions. He says, above all, make sure you're loving one another persistently, earnestly, deeply. Love is the governing disposition for those who are living with the end in mind. So here's what I want you to see, and I'm going to explain this as our first point. Fostering a community characterized by persistent and mutual love demands work and sacrifice, but it delivers deep joy. We're going to see in just a second, Peter wants us to know that there is sacrifice involved in persistently loving one another earnestly. In other words, there's a cost, but the reward is tremendous. Loving someone means putting their desires and their interests and their longings ahead of our own, recognizing that that other person may not reciprocate. That other person may not respond the way that we're, that we're loving them. Loving someone uh, means putting yourself out there, so to speak. It means being open. It means being willing uh, to be hurt. I heard a pastor's wife say one time, this is not, 
you know, sometimes people say I've got a friend, but they really mean themselves. Um, this is not, I'm not talking about my own wife, but I did hear, I heard a pastor's wife say one time, I won't let myself get close to anyone anymore. I've been hurt too many times. And this is, and that's devastating. I, mean, I was devastated when I heard that. This is someone that I really care about. And, and she's saying, I, I'm not going to let myself get, get close. I'm not going to put myself out there anymore because there's a cost to love. There's a risk to love. Because we know that when we do put ourselves out there, sometimes we do get hurt. But the reward of, of love is incredible. The reward is an environment where a multitude of sins are covered, Peter says. Now, Peter's not saying that, that love ignores sin in the people that we care about. He's not saying that, that quote-unquote, love means allowing people to continue in their self-destructive and God-dishonoring ways. He's not saying that. What he's saying is love creates a culture where many of the small offenses are actually overlooked. When love is constant, many personal offenses, and, and even some larger ones, are dismissed, and the offender is given the benefit of the doubt. The offender is actually extended grace. This is what Paul means uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says, love bears all things, believes all things. doesn't mean that love is naive. doesn't mean that if you, you, know, you sort of, I just believe anything. No, it means you give that other person, you, you give the person you love the benefit of the doubt. That's what it means by believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. However, where love is not constant, where love is not persistent, an atmosphere is created where every word is scrutinized, every joke is viewed with suspicion, every comment broken down to the nth degree. You know, when, there, when there's not love there, it's whenever you're waiting, you're actually, rather than listening for understanding, you're listening for ammunition. And so when, I, when you say something to me because love is not there, I'm actually waiting for you to say something that will offend me. I'm waiting to scrutinize and nitpick what you'll say to me. That's what happens in an environment where love is not persistent. Now, that sounds miserable, doesn't it? It sounds horrible. And I know I say way too many dumb things to be in an environment where, gonna, where there's going to be that level of scrutiny because I know there's going to be tension. And this is the way that some churches are. This is the way that some families are, where every single word is scrutinized to the nth degree because love is not persistent. Well, think about how you feel in an environment where you have to make sure that you say everything just right. You ever been in a relationship like that or a friendship like you? You know, you have to say everything just right. You have to dot every I, cross every T, say everything just right, or you know that the other person is going to be heard. There's going to be some sort of blow up. Now contrast that with a relationship where there's safety, where you know when you blow it, when you say something dumb, you'll be extended grace. You'll be loved. There's joy in that relationship, isn't there? This is the sort of community established when its members, in the words of Peter, keep loving each other earnestly. And Peter goes on to say, where there is this kind of love, the church, verse 9, practices hospitality without grumbling and serves as uh, various gifts or stewards of God's grace. Every believer has been gifted by Christ. Every believer is actually a steward of God's very grace. And a steward is, is someone 
who has been entrusted with something they didn't earn, but, but is to be used for the benefit of another person. I sat in, I guess it was a week ago or two weeks ago, in our, in, uh, on the stewardship team meeting. And this is a group of very gifted and responsible individuals who are working to serve this church by making sure that what, what the church is given is actually used in a responsible way for the benefit of others. And I was so encouraged by that meeting. To be a steward means to be, uh, to be entrusted with something that you didn't earn, but was in fact given to you to be used for the benefit of another. And Peter says that, that we as believers are actually stewards of God's grace. We talk about God's grace, we're talking about all the ways that God blesses us, all the ways that he encourages us, all the things he gives to us. And what Peter's saying is that God has determined to pour out his grace, his blessings, his encouragement, largely through other people. It's easy to forget sometimes, sometimes that God works most often through means. Not always, but he works most often through means. Sometimes God works immediately, and this means directly or, or, or supernaturally. At other times, God works immediately, that is, through people, tools, events. For example, if God wants to destroy a building, he can say the word, and the earth will swallow up that building, and the building will be gone. God can do that very easily if he wants, but he doesn't often do it that way. We don't see it that way. What he does instead is he, he moves people to develop a plan to secure the tools and to systematically destroy that building. Still, God's the one behind it. If God wants to heal someone, he can supernaturally remove an illness from someone's body. And I sh I'm sure that some of you have seen this. Someone who's, who's been healed miraculously, supernaturally, and the doctors say, I, I don't know what happened. I can't explain what happened. I cannot explain the way this worked. I've got a, one of my best friends who's daughter was born with Down syndrome and, and was born with a, a hole in her heart. And surgery was scheduled and, and things were all, were all planned out. I don't know, it was like seven months in, in advance. And then they go back for an appointment a few months later and the doctor said, look, the hole's not there anymore. God supernaturally healed them. He can do that easily. God can do anything he wants to do. But what he tends to do, he uses doctors and medicine and treatments and surgeries to conquer a disease. So God can work immediately, and he can work immediately. And the same can be said about the way he, he works in us and through us spiritually. Sometimes he pours out his comfort on us immediately, supernaturally. Have you ever been on your knees before the Lord? You go to the Lord, and you're just really hurting over something. And you don't know what to do, and you don't know how to respond. And you go, and you just cry out to God, and say, God, I'm, I'm here. I need your help. You explain. And then when you're done praying, you, you sense that relief. You, you sense a, the peace. And, and you don't know how to explain it, but it's there. You know it's there. You know it's from the Lord. Sometimes God works that way immediately. And sometimes he brings along other people who offer words of encouragement and words of wisdom. They offer biblical counsel and they help us. And that's the way that God works through means. Most of the time, in fact, I would say he works through other people. If you are in Christ, God has placed you into a believing community for your joy and for the good of others. You are a steward of a gift that is meant to be used for the benefit of others. Here's the second point this morning. We assist each other in the perseverance of our faith by sacrificially serving one another. When you become a Christian, 
It's not then that you sort of, you belong to God and you, you, you make a decision, so, you know, down the road to join a church. Being in Christ means belonging to God and to one another. In fact, this is your identity. The fact that you are a Christian becomes the single most important aspect of who you are. You are, in the words of Christ, you are in Christ. This is the way that the word that Jesus, the phrase that Jesus uses in, in Mark's gospel and, and the, God, the writers use, the evangelists use as well. Church isn't a building or a service you attend. It's a community of believers that you do life with. Because again, we're created in the image of a triune God who himself exists in perfect community. And you know, you, when you come along some, uh, alongside someone else and you offer a word of encouragement, you may not think you're doing anything. I mean, you, you may not think you've helped at all. I've done this so many times. As a counselor, as a pastor, as a friend, I've said something to someone, I've gone back and I've thought, you know, that was not the least bit helpful. You may come alongside someone and you may not feel like you've done anything, but you actually have been the vessel through which God is going to pour out his grace. Now, it doesn't mean that, that you know, you're going to see things go exactly the way that you, you want them to go. In fact, I was asked, sitting up on this very stage, sitting in a chair, asked a question during the, my, my Q&A time, what, what's the the hardest part about being in vocational ministry. And, and the hardest part is when you pray and you pour out and you invest and you give counsel to people and they, and they just spurn and they want to do their own thing and you see them suffer the consequences of their own rebellion. That's the most heartbreaking thing. So it doesn't mean that, you know, we're always going to get what we want or see things go the way that we want. But even when we can't see it, God is pouring out his grace through us. What does this mean practically to use our gifts in this way? Well, every believer has a spiritual gift. And here's the way that I'll define a spiritual gift. A gift is a spirit-empowered ability to be particularly effective at a certain assignment. What this means is that we're, we're gifted differently. So you may be more effective at something than the, than the person next to you. And, and I've learned what my spiritual gifts are, and I've learned what my spiritual gifts are not. And I've learned that I'm, I'm not actually very good at demonstrating mercy. It's not one of my spiritual gifts. In fact, I was sitting across from my 12-year-old daughter the other day over lunch, and she looked at me, and she said, oh, for some reason, my head really, my head's bothering me. I said, oh, that, that, that really hurts. And then she said something else, and I said, oh, that, that really hurts. And she said the third thing, I said, that, that really hurts. She goes, Dad, you, you just keep saying the same thing. You're looking around. You're not paying attention. You're not helping me. And I realized I, I, I'm not always the greatest at demonstrating mercy. When I, when I first uh, was an elder at a church in Northwest Indiana, my father-in-law was also an elder. And he's six foot seven, FBI, you know, retired FBI special agent. But he's just the most gentle soul, just a gentle person. And I, know, I noticed when, when he would go on a hospital visit, people would warm up and they would feel encouraged and they would just feel so blessed. And then when I would go, people would look at me like, I must really be dying here. I mean, this has really gotten bad if you're here. And I realized that I have to, and I work at it. I'm not saying that I just sort of, well, I can never be, I work at it, but I'm not that great at it. There are other things that I'm better at. There are things that, that you're way better at than I am. There are things that you're better at than the people in the same row. And there are things that the people in the same row are better at than you are. I was um, in, in a, the mission meeting here for, for Capshaw a little over a week ago, or a week ago exactly maybe, and, and, and John, this guy John said to me, I, I, 
I'm, a, I'm an encourager. And I thought at that moment, he's exactly right. He has already encouraged me personally in multiple ways. He has the gift of encouragement. And so now there are a variety of gifts and we don't have time to go through all of them. But for some, you may be particularly effective at encouragement. Or you may be particularly effective at teaching or leadership or mercy. And and all those things are incredibly valuable to the church because, again, that's the way God pours out His grace as we serve one another and act as stewards. When you use your gifts as a conduit or agent of God's grace, you are helping other people persevere in the faith, grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. Uh, You're helping them to recognize and rejoice in the sufficiency of the gospel. You're helping them to overcome uh, sinful uh, tendencies or, or temptations. So you're using, you've been gifted by God to help folks in this, in this area. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone has to serve in a specific area. It doesn't mean that everybody has to serve in the nursery or the greeting team or making coffee. Sometimes I think we tend to believe, and I really, I recognize maybe about eight or nine years ago, I had fallen prey to this misunderstanding myself, that we, we believe that our gifts are utilized only kind of during our gatherings, you know, during our worship services. But some of the gifts actually function better in small groups. Some of the gifts function best in one-on-one relationships. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you're really active in serving this believing community, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like it on Sunday morning. And that's okay. As long as you are used, being used by God, humbly being used by God to encourage and build up others. Not everybody can encourage the body through their musical skills or their vocal chops, right? Not everybody can sing or play like Chris and some of the folks up here. In fact, some people would probably only do harm if they tried to use gifts that they don't have in this particular area. But everyone can assist one another by encouraging, by using the gifts that Christ himself has imparted to them. So I ask you, as I asked myself this week, Where are you gifted and how are you using your gifts for the good of the church and the glory of Jesus Christ? Now, I want to answer, I want to wrap this morning by answering the question, why should we love? Why should we serve? And I want you to know what Peter does when he instructs these believers to serve one another. What does he appeal to? When he he wants them to serve one another and love one another, what does he appeal to? Does, Does he say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you serving one another? Does he blast them? Does he just issue one command after another? No, look at verse 11 again. He says, by the strength that God supplies, by the strength that God supplies, you serve one another. Whatever we're doing, we do it by the strength that God supplies. And again, God supplies that strength through means. How does God supply his strength? Well, sometimes immediately, supernaturally, but often He does so by means, and the chief means by which God strengthens His people, it's by the Holy Spirit and through the gospel. By the Holy Spirit and through the gospel. So we can only make sense of these letters. So this is is a letter, the first letter written by Peter. And you know what we do on Sunday mornings is we look at a section of it, four verses, eight verses, ten verses, whatever. But we can only make sense of this letter if we understand it in its entirety. In other words, we look at the entire context because the way these letters were meant to be received is they were read at once. And so in order for us to understand the motivation behind our loving and behind our serving, 
we have to go back and consider a little bit of the letter. So scan back up to, up to verse 1 of, of 1 Peter 4. Peter says, Since Christ suffered, you are no longer to be ruled by human passions. Then later you are to live in a way that's different from the world's way of living. And then at the point we are now, you are to love one another earnestly, to serve one another sacrificially. Peter says you are to do all of those things since or because Christ suffered. But it's not just because Christ suffered. If you look up a little bit further in your Bible, at chapter 3, verse 18, um, Peter says, since Christ suffered, and then he says, we say no to human passions, we live in a different way than the world, we love each other earnestly, we serve one another sacrificially. Why? Because we have been brought to God. Because we have been brought to God. Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. That's another way of saying you have been made right with God. You have been reconciled to God. Because of Jesus' obedience, we have been cleansed by faith from all of our sins. We stand totally forgiven. Our status with God is secure. We already, God already loves us to the full extent. We have all the love of God that we need. We are sons and daughters of the living God, which means we have his acceptance, his approval, and a worth. And for this reason, we are then to give of ourselves without needing or demanding anything in return. Here's what I'm saying. This is our third point this morning, our final point. It is the assurance of who we already are in Christ that enables us and inspires us to give ourselves freely to others. So it's not simply by hearing you need to do this, you should do this, you ought to do this. It's the recognition of who we already are in Christ. I'm going to explain this. That enables us and inspires us to give ourselves freely to others. Think about this way. What are those things that prevent us or deter us from loving other people well and from serving other people? And the first thing that comes to my mind is, is fear, right? Maybe it's fear. What if I give myself and it's not returned? What if I fail? What if other people talk about me? What if I make a mistake? What if I ruin this relationship? Maybe it's busyness. I just don't have the time to invest in anyone else at this point. Perhaps it's apathy. If I'm really honest with myself, I just don't really care that much about the spiritual progress of other people. Well, what is the antidote to fear, insecurity, busyness, laziness, apathy? These are all addressed in the gospel. If you are in Christ this morning, you are loved by God, even though you don't deserve his love. And furthermore, you've been bought with a price and there's nothing or no one who can take you from God, who can take the love of God from you. So that means you can now live without fear, knowing if you fail, if you blow it, if you say something silly or whatever it is, God's love is, is steadfast and secure, so it's not going anywhere. So you don't have to live with fear. You don't have to worry about your standing with God. You have everything you need in Christ Jesus. You actually don't need the approval of everyone else because you stand approved by God in Christ through faith alone. And a true spirit-empowered understanding of that, where we were who we are now in Christ, this love of God which is unchanging, a true spirit-empowered understanding of that actually enables us and moves us 
to love other people. Because it, it, it simply becomes the overflow of who we are in Christ and all that we've received by God through His Son. So the person who has experienced God's undeserved and unwavering love in Christ will want to honor Him, to please others, to love others, and to serve others. So let me illustrate this in a couple of ways. Not long ago, I was listening to a young lady share some of her frustrations in her fairly young marriage. I think she'd been married two years, two and a half years. And she was explaining how she spent all day, and they had, you know, they had, uh, as I recall, like a, a year and a half, a one-year-old or maybe 18-month-old and, and a new baby. And she was explaining how she had spent all day with these two very young kids, um, trying to care for them and, and watch them every second and, and look over them. And so when her husband came home from work, she had a list of things for him to do, you know, things around the house, things that needed fixed, things that needed repair, things that needed cleaned. And she said when, when her husband came home, she would brandish to him this list, but it had no effect at all. He would just plop down on the couch and watch football or whatever he did. He just didn't, didn't do anything. And so what did she do? She just started making her list longer and putting it in all caps and bold and saying, look, here's your list. Do this. But he just got worse. Then he, you know, he could hardly get in the door before he was on the couch, feet on the couch, whatever. Well, he wasn't doing anything. And so I'm listening to her explain what she was, what was going on. And, and we had talked about this, you know, for a, a number of times at this point. And I said, well, this is going to sound totally counterintuitive. But why don't you put the list away? And when your husband comes home, why don't you just tell him how thankful you are for him? How much you like? And the husband was wrong. I mean, I'm not, the husband was wrong. And we, we got to that down the road. But I said, why don't you try this? And it's not going to, it's going to sound so, you're going to think, this guy's just absolutely all wet here. But why don't you just let him know that you're thankful that he, he's working hard. You're thankful that he's the father uh, to your, your children. You're thankful for the way that, it, that uh, he loves and so on. And so she totally, she, she bought into this. And when her husband came home, um, she, she didn't bring the list out. She started th- you know, telling, hey, look, I want you to know I love you. And uh, I'm really grateful for you. And the kids are excited to see you. And they love you. And, um, and she started to notice that his heart started to turn. Because what she had really cultivated, she didn't realize this, what she had cultivated was this sort of culture that if you do what I say, if you do the thing, you do the list, you meet my expectations, I will show love to you. But if you don't, you're not going to receive my love. And what she did was she, she removed all the conditionality out of the relationship. She said, I'm going to love him unconditionally. And what she saw was, this is a true story. What she saw was his heart began to turn. And what she noticed was after a while, he came home. He just started doing stuff. He didn't even have a list or anything. He just started doing things. And then he went even further and started, and started asking, hey, what can I do to help you? She was blown away by this. Let me give you another example. There's a young uh, Korean-American pastor in uh, the Los Angeles area by the name of J.S. Park and and he's written a, a book or two. And I don't agree with everything he, he's written, but I love his testimony. Park was a devout atheist. And in fact, he hated Christianity. He lived his life for the pursuit of pleasure. He describes himself as a stubborn, uh, thick-headed atheist. The only thing he was interested about Christianity was, in his words, looking for hot Christian girls. Um, and then he encountered this, this pastor. And he said he hated going to church. And he hated even more sitting still for these sermons. But he said there was something different 
about this. And this is, I'm not the pastor, by the way. This is not a story about how great I was. Uh, he encountered something different about this pastor. And he said he felt like, he didn't feel like he was beaten down and scolded each week, but he was introduced to this bizarre, incredible person by the name of Jesus. This Jesus who hung around the outcasts, the deviants, who was a person who just seemed to exude mercy and kindness and love for the people that everyone else had written off. And he said this pastor was very much like Jesus in this way. Park says, he called me and texted me when I never replied. He bought me lunches, dinners, books. He sent cards to my house. He spent hours praying for me. When one day I was horribly depressed, he listened without judging. He never once lost his temper with me. Over time, I realized how much of a jerk I was to him. I didn't listen. I was late all the time. I had meetings with him for which I didn't show. I strolled into church hungover. I never asked how he was doing. But he was endlessly loving to me. And the grace of this man, this is his own words, the grace of this man completely melted me. When I was sobbing hysterically one day, he gripped my hand and he told me about this God. This God who loves the unlovable, who came and died for a people who were his very enemies. While we were still in sin, Christ died for the ungodly. He told me about this God who actually gave himself for me when I, wanted, when I deserved nothing but his wrath. And he said, my eyes began to glisten and my heart was overwhelmed by his sacrifice. His grace fundamentally ripped away my selfishness and disturbed my ego in such a way that I could do nothing but respond to this majestic and incredible God. Now here's what I'm saying to you. We're called to serve one another with our gifts. And, and, and God has uniquely gifted you to serve this particular church, this body. But the only way we're going to be a church that's serving one another, which, which I've already seen, we very much are. I'm very encouraged by the, by the way that we're serving one another and caring for one another. But the way to continue that and become even more loving and more sacrificial is as we begin to recognize deeper and deeper and deeper the suffering of Christ on our behalf. The love of God who would send His own Son so that we could be made right with him, so that we could be his very own. If we see God as this ruthless taskmaster, we'll say in the words of Charles Spurgeon, who said, when I, found, when I thought God to be hard and uncaring, I found it easy to disobey. But when I realized something of the mercy of this God and the love of this God, I thought, how can I, how can I rebel against someone who loves me so? If we understand God as this ruthless taskmaster, then we're not going to want to serve or love anyone else. But if we understand God as this incredible, merciful God who would satisfy His own wrath by sending His own Son, if we see what God has done, the extent to which He came to save us and went to save us, then we say, how great Thou art. And we say, how can I love the people around me? Let's pray.